and welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. Today, I have with me Jeff Schof, AGC's Senior Executive Director of Government Affairs. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. And as always, I'm your host, Scott Barry. So let's let's talk, Jeff. Let's peer into your crystal ball a little bit here. Uh, I'll I'll set the stage. So Donald Trump is the new president. The Republicans retained their majority in the Senate and only lost a few seats in the House. And we heard last episode from AGC's CEO, Steve Sandher, that AGC is sort of taking a cautiously optimistic approach. How is your team in government affairs planning to approach the new opportunities and challenges that all of these things present us? Well, first off, uh, I guess Steve's uh, comment that we're cautiously optimistic is probably a widely held belief in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump is not to be underestimated or to be predicted. I think that's what we learned from 2016. If nothing else, that really is a fact that sinks home for everybody. Uh, I do know that uh, President-elect Trump has been very engaged with Republican leaders to a certain extent, but he hasn't even shown them all of his cards. Uh, so we're hopeful that uh, that he takes quick action on some things, uh, as an executive can do. Uh, but we hope that he spends time to really learn the impact of some of the ideas that he has and comes up with a more fully rounded uh, position on some of the issues that are out there. So do you think that given the with the way the House is broken down, the, the kinds of Republicans that lost their seats, the few that did in this last election, generally were on the more moderate side. So it seems to me that the, the more conservative Tea Party style wing of the Republican Party is, is more powerful proportionally now than they were uh, last election. Do you think that's true? I, well, uh, I guess some of the some of the people that lost were moderates, but some of the people that lost were conservatives. They lost in a primary rather than a general. I mean, lost, uh, Scott Garrett lost in the general, uh, but you t- had Tim Hulskamp lose in the primary. They were very conservative and very much Tea Party and very much no on everything. I think it, the whole election, if, if you're a politician in Washington, D.C., and you don't see this election as a wake-up call to pay attention, be productive, and be thoughtful about your job, then you're probably an idiot and don't deserve the job in the first place. I think a lot of people would say that about most of Congress. but, uh, but And some of them are. Some of them are sure. idiots and don't even try to hide it. But others are not idiots, and those are the people we try to work with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But regardless, though, I think the, the Tea Party uh, style of conservatives sees uh, the Trump election as a, a vindication of sorts, an empowerment. And do you think that Trump is more willing to work with those type of folks to get policy through that maybe traditional Republicans don't want to do or that the leadership may not want to do? Or is that the kind of thing that where Trump really, like you said, is just a loose cannon, can do whatever he wants or uh, really makes his own priorities? I think the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party thinks that the sun coming up in the morning is vindication of their ideals. They don't really need something actually to have happened that they created for them to feel vindicated and and uh, and feel like they are the chosen group. Uh, that's part of the problem with them. They don't really understand what's going on around them. They're they're extremely myopic. 
Uh, I don't think Trump wants to work with them. I don't think Trump wants to work with anybody. He's going to have people work with him, and that's how he is going to approach this. That's just not his style for him to say, oh, I'm going to tie my wagon to this little cabal in the House. They're too small. They're they're too immaterial for him to worry about. They don't really have any power that, that he can get from them. There's all sorts of other people. I mean, Paul Ryan's got a lot more followers in uh, in Congress than anybody in the Tea Party does. Uh, and Trump is going to be looking for someone who can actually deliver votes and have followers and, and develop good policy. And I think he'll more go that direction because he's used to just kind of stringing together powerful allies so that he can get what he wants because that's how a developer kind of puts deals together. So you mentioned working with Congress and finding the right people in Congress to do things. That's something that the government affairs team has worked really hard over the last you know, several Congresses to find the right people and support the right people. Uh, a lot of that work after two years, every Congress kind of restarts. Do you think uh, your team is starting over from square one now that we have a new Congress, new president, new everything? Or does a lot of that work still you know, lay the foundation for future work? Uh, I think we did an awful lot of work. We got, what, 90% of Congress came back uh, this time. They've been here for a while, but you've got a huge percentage of people who have not been in Congress for very long in historical terms. Almost half in, have been there less than three uh, cycles in the House. Uh, about the same, less than half uh, in the Senate right. have been there two cycles. So they they really have. It, it takes a while to understand how the how the place works. It also takes a little while to figure out where you want your expertise to be, because a, a real effective member of Congress is a member of Congress who's developed an expertise in a certain policy area that impacts his district or her district, impacts his constituents in a certain way. And they take that knowledge that they have from their district and from people that they know, and they turn that into good policy for the country. At least that's their goal. It doesn't always turn out to be good policy, but they, they do it with the right intention. So so it takes a while to do that. Uh, we've been working with people uh, either trying to get things done in the House and Senate or trying to push back on regulations for the last uh, six, eight years. So we've got some people who are pretty educated on the way construction works. I think we're, we're starting a new initiative uh, over the last couple months just trying to get members of Congress to focus on the impact of change orders in a federal construction project because the agencies do a horrible job managing those um, and Congress needs to understand that that, you know, that horrible job that they do creates inefficiencies. It is an inadvertent black eye that a, that a federal project gets because the construction management on the federal side was done incorrectly. And so we, we've been talking to these people for, for years, trying to get them to understand the construction industry and processes. That hasn't changed in the last 10 years, so I, I think we're pretty consistent in delivering a message that here's what we need. We need consistent funding. We need good decisions made. Uh, we need to, you know, not tie us up with red tape. We need to not be handed uh, 50,000 pages of regulations and paperwork that we have to comply with to get a government contract. Those things aren't productive. Uh, we think we've got pretty good follower ship in that area. We think we've got a good number of people that are um, becoming better experts on construction. We lost a couple of contractors uh, in the last uh, election. They both decided to, re to uh, retire at the end of uh, three terms, uh, Reed Ribble and Richard Hanna. Uh, they were both contractors at heart, and they wanted to do good things they wanted to see a good project at the end of the at the end of the legislative session uh, and 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 they worked closely with us and having those people in a hearing or in a markup 
hearing some of the crazy ideas that get thrown around in the, in that situation really was nice because their 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 fallback was real life their fallback was this is how construction really works and you're going to screw it up don't do that and having a member of congress do that for us it was very nice yeah that's invaluable um, in that kind of thing they yeah. have that kind of advocate in a body like congress yeah and we've got a couple of new contractors who are in uh francis rooney is uh, uh, in Florida is is new comes from a big company that, uh, that that's been active in AGC off and on for years uh, and and so we need to get to know some of them see if they'll take this mantle and and run with it but you know we're we're constantly looking to uh, to members of the House and Senate to find out whether they've got any background in construction because it does really help that they understand the business if we're trying to sell them something that uh, that really helps the business. One thing I did want to add was that the, the constituent relationship with a member of Congress, helping with that education is very important. Uh, we undertook an effort starting with last year's convention, reaching out to our members across the country, asking them who they were connected to uh, in any kind of uh, relationship with an elected official at the federal or state level. It reinforces anything we say, and it also also makes us smarter every time we talk to our members about their jobs and the way that rules and regulations impact their jobs. Where can members go to take this survey if they want to? Well, we made it very easy. We've sent it out in numerous uh, publications and numerous emails, but you can also take it at www.agc.org backslash survey, and it's real easy to take. It only takes a couple minutes. I think I did it in three minutes on my cell phone during the convention last year just to make sure it worked. <laughs> Great. All right, so let's talk about the, the process that AGC goes through um, to develop its priority lists. So we have a legislative action committee. It meets every two years after the federal election to set the legislative and regulatory policy priorities for the association. And it's not a static meeting that really only has input one time in a two-year period. It really kind of is an ongoing collaboration between AGC staff, AGC's board of directors, AGC committees and divisions, and uh, we kind of bring in new issues that are happening in Congress. We uh, get feedback from members. We talk to folks about what our policy should be. Uh, we look for issues that have an impact on the a broad impact on the industry. Does it impact an, a lot of AGC members? If it does, obviously that's something we need to take a look at. Uh, we look at timeliness. You know, is it is it an authorization that's going to happen in five years, or is it an authorization that happens next year? If it's if it's real timely, then we're going to want to make that a high priority. Uh, if it's if we look at achievability, we don't want to to talk to you guys about. AGC's priorities and have it be a super stretch goal that we will never be able to reach. We want to come to you with the biggest issues that we think we can actually achieve in the next two years, and that's that's how that list is put together. The way that we, we did the um, the priorities this year, some of them are, are how do we create a better environment for employees, like improve the workforce, improve safety, that sort of thing. Other ones are how do we improve the environment for companies, and we talk about tax policy, regulatory policy, those sorts of things. Um, but, but there's an awful lot of small details underneath every one of those headings. Uh, we've got uh, one thing on the list, improve the pipeline for the construction workforce. It's something that our 
our board has been focused on for four years. Our surveys have shown that this is the biggest issue facing uh, the industry. We've heard from people that they can't find enough workers to do the work that they would really like to bid on. And that's a problem that we need to address. I don't think the federal government has a comprehensive solution, but we're working really hard to make the tools that the federal government has, whether it be the Workforce Investment Act or the Perkins Act, uh, make sure that there's enough resources there for them to do their job and make sure that the, the process that they go through to get that money out or get those resources out to the people is a good modern system, not something that's, that's uh, a throwback to 50 years ago, but something that really meets the needs of today's uh, people seeking work uh, or, or companies seeking workers. Uh, and that's what we're trying to marry up. We started a coalition to kind of go along with that, really looking at the, the workforce in industries like ours because we found out that the, the high-tech folks, the, uh, the big manufacturers have been very active in this space for a long time, and we don't want them to steal all the good people. We, wanna, we want the good people to come to the construction industry. Uh, we are constantly looking for ways to innovate uh, both at the, at the micro level and at the macro level where we're trying to find a new way of talking about something or a new way of doing something so that we can get Congress's attention to problems that face our industry. Right. And this is one of those complex issues that we kind of referred to earlier that it's helped that we've, as AGC, been advocating on this topic since well before, you know, we called this a crisis and, and, you know, been establishing a real foundation of education about what the construction workforce needs are, uh, because that kind of permeates lots of different issues, right? You know, like immigration, uh, which is something that's going to be rising to the top of the agenda this year. So how do you think the new Congress and the new president is maybe going to change or shift the way we talk about workforce? Uh, I don't know how Congress is going to change, I'm, and I'm really, really unsure what the president is going to say about it. Uh, the, the talk about, I mean, if immigration, I, I do think immigration is a component of our workforce plan. I, I, I do think that uh, that we're going to see a lot more job site enforcement in the future. We've got to be able to deal with that. We've got to we've got to be able to to have a good pipeline of workers coming into the industry, uh, and we got to know that these people are who that they who they say they are. What I would like like to see from Congress or from Capitol Hill is is a is a really pragmatic, thoughtful process. And I know that might sound funny because it's probably not going to happen. But dealing with immigration and dealing with workforce and having one party decide everything probably will make it a disaster. I'd like to see a really well thought out plan come forward. Uh, it, it, today it feels like a pipe dream. It's still bitter and partisan as ever and as it was during the campaign. I don't know if that's going to change. When it does, I think we'll get smarter decisions made, and I hope we get to that point. Do you think that also changes for some of the other issues that are in our top priorities, things like multi-employer pension reform, labor, PLAs? I mean, PLAs is a perennial issue. We've been... We've been dealing with that for the last 20 years, and our, I mean, our position is we don't we don't support government mandates on project labor agreements simply because we don't want the government forcing us to negotiate something. Uh, if it's a good idea, 
a smart contractor will enter into a PLA if they want to do that. And they should dictate the terms of that PLA, not some government official who really doesn't understand construction. Uh, it really should be the contractor who knows the environment, knows the, knows the region, knows the workforce. Uh, so we don't, we don't particularly like those. I, I do think that that'll be one of the executive orders that we see early on from the Trump administration, repealing the Obama administration's uh, encouragement of project labor agreements. Uh, we don't support what President Obama did, and we'd like to see that undone. So uh, we'd like to see that happen pretty quickly. On other labor issues, I don't really know where Donald Trump is on labor issues. I mean, he's a New York Republican who was a Democrat at one point, who has worked with uh, organized labor for a long time. I think he understands parts of the construction business, the part that he likes to understand. Uh, being a developer, he's on the other side of that equation. Um, so he, he may not understand construction as well as a contractor would. But our members have dealt with uh, developers for a long time. So we'll figure out a way to do it. Well, one thing I know is is almost certainly going to be different is the way that we have interacted with the administration on the regulatory landscape. I mean, with the Obama administration, we saw a lot of what folks I would assume amongst our membership would call regulatory overreach. I think that the Trump administration is probably not going to be going that route. So uh, I imagine our interaction is going to be very different there. How do you think that uh, we will accomplish our goals on the regulatory space now that we have a friendly ear in the administration? Uh, I think uh, regulatory overreach might be an understatement, uh, <laughs> but uh, overreach has been consistent. It has been harsh. It has been punitive. It has been unnecessary, I think, in a lot of areas. Uh, I would hope that we see the Trump administration look for ways to roll back some of the regulations or stop some of the regulations that are out there. Uh, I know we've we've developed about a 55-page uh book lit on um, making federal regulars, regulators responsible again. Uh, we would really like to see uh, both Congress and the administration work to find ways to, f to fix that. We've, uh, we've been supportive of uh, the Congressional Review Act. We're hoping that uh, they use that on something like the blacklisting regulation uh, early on this year. Uh, we would like to see maybe changes to the way, uh, the way Congress interacts with agencies. I mean, Congress really for the last six years has abdicated its role in overseeing the executive branch. They just gave away turf. They shouldn't have done that. They should have real hearings on real appropriations bills. They should go through them one at a time, and make sure they're actually looking at what the agencies do instead of letting the Obama administration just run, run scot-free like they did. I mean, it was, it, was, it was amazing what Republicans let the Obama administration get away with. I mean, I never would have predicted that from the beginning. There were so many people in 2010 after the election that we're saying all right we're gonna we're gonna get back the authority that we got but they they didn't get it back they voluntarily gave it up because they were too uncoordinated themselves to actually manage the store they just let people run in and steal their shirt it was crazy so we're hopeful that that things get a little bit more uh responsible and and uh, pragmatic, and, and I'm not sure that goes with everything we've seen from the past election, but we're hopeful. And that's, in fact, you know, the first couple of things that we came out of this Congress already in January uh, that we've come out in support as AGC were, were steps to get the, the regulatory arm of the administration kind of more under the purview of Congress and to resort some of that authority, right? 
Yeah, yeah, the, the, the RAINS Act and measures strengthening the Congressional Review Act and measures that were strengthening other oversight functions of the Congress. They're bills that passed the House, not going to pass the Senate. They're not going to have an impact. They were done for headlines. They were done to make people feel good. That's the concern I have long term with this, with Congress is if they don't, if they don't focus on the same sort of things that we focus on when we're signing up or, or identifying our legislative uh, priorities like what's timely what's achievable instead they're going they're every every swing they take is for the fences and they're going to strike out an awful lot of times it may never hit anything over the fence that's true so let's switch gears a little bit i want to talk about um kind of construction markets uh one of the things that i think a lot of our members are really interested in are things like um making the private construction market more um, hospitable for building, uh, fixing the highway trust fund, fixing, like you mentioned earlier, you know, federal contracting, making it work more efficiently. Um, and obviously, Mr. Trump has talked a great deal about a big, huge infrastructure plan. And as you mentioned, also, he's a private developer by trade, so knows a lot about kind of how the private construction market works. So what do you think that means for our members' markets going forward? It was terrific that both Republicans and Democrats during the presidential campaign talked about infrastructure investment as a priority. I couldn't agree with them more. They need to do it. They need to do more investment. They need to do it smarter. Uh, and they need to do things in a way that that really touches the American people so that people can, can see the improvements they're getting for their federal dollars. And we do spend a lot of time trying to look at the way procurement happens in the federal government and make sure that there's actually a good value for the dollars. I mean, they can they can throw all sorts of risk our direction uh, and and uh, come up with a and we can come up with a project and a, and a price that'll meet that. But if we come together on a, a maybe a different set of terms that keeps a lot of the risk at the at the agency level and and minimizes the risk of the contracts, they're going to get a much better deal for that. Uh, so I think I think hopefully they they look at ways to uh, to get more out of every dollar that they spend. I'm not yet certain what uh, the Trump administration has in mind for an infrastructure package. They want it to be huge. Uh, they want it to be twice as big as Hillary's idea was, and that was that was fine during the campaign. But now it's real life, and they need to come up with something more concrete. Uh, I think that uh, that Trump really did mean this. I think he understands the tangible benefit of delivering that sort of improvement to the country, and I think he wants to do that sort of thing. I don't know that he yet knows how. You know, I talked earlier about members of Congress needing to spend a little bit of time in the trenches to figure out how the place works. I think it's the same thing for the president. I mean, that's not a job where you come in as a really well-seasoned apprentice and now you've got the job. I mean, he did spend a lot of time on The Apprentice, but I don't think it made it perfect for for the job yet. And it'll take him a while to figure that out. I hope that he keeps a focus on it. And there are a lot of I think low-hanging fruit. I think coming up with with ideas that'll that'll fund the highway trust fund so it doesn't run out of money in 2020. That should be an easy thing to add to whatever they're trying to do. Uh, restructuring the federal agency uh, areas where they deal with public-private partnerships so that every agency has a similar method for doing those. Uh, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for them to find efficiencies. It, it, it allows contractors and, and others to figure out how to work with the agencies to deliver quality and deliver uh, quantities that, that will be impressive. 
And until they, they come up with a good way to balance all that stuff, I'm not sure how P, the P3 market will take off. And I know that's something that, that Trump has talked about. Uh, there's an awful lot of big bridges that need to be done. There's a lot of tunnels that need to be done. Uh, a lot of those are in areas that didn't vote Trump, so I'm not sure whether that's going to be the priority. And I don't know whether whether he thinks like that, really. I mean, he thought outside the box during the campaign. That's how he ended up where he's going to be. So I, I think he's a uh, he's an unknown as far as that goes. But the fact that he's made infrastructure a Republican issue, I think, is terrific for us. And it creates a great opportunity for us to help guide the uh, administration to deliver something good for our members. Maybe we should talk a little bit about tax. Uh, tax issues, they I mean, they permeate all facets of construction, really. And that's one of those other things that are, there's a lot of education that needs to be done because there's a lot of maybe not smaller issues, but a lot of issues that are that are somewhat unique to construction and then some issues that aren't unique to construction. How are, are you and the tax folks looking at that? Uh, tax issues, like you said, impact everybody. Uh, what, what our tax, our members who are involved in tax issues have said to us is give us something that, that creates certainty. Make sure that it sticks around for, you know, permanent kind of tax code so that we know how to plan long term and we know how our customers are going to plan long term. Uh, and, and then look for ways that we can use the tax code to do good things for the country like infrastructure investment and that sort of thing. So we really look for, for permanency. We look for uh, efficiency in the tax code so that so that it's not it's not the tax code driving a decision. Instead, it's a good business decision that's driving a decision. That way, people have a have a good feeling that whatever financial considerations they're making before they do a major development project are going to be there when the project's done. Um, so so that's kind of how we focus. Uh, we focus mostly on on reducing rates because that's the that's the big enchilada there. You know, we're going to be in the the position in the in the near future of trying to figure out which tax incentives we might be willing to give up in order to get lower rates because mm. you don't get both. You don't get to right. keep all the incentives and uh, and then also get lower rates. We're going to lose stuff. I think we're at a place where every time we lose stuff, the if, if the rate goes down an equivalent amount, it's going to be a net benefit to the industry and to, and to, to the people who we work with uh, because you're going to take complexity out of there. Every one of these benefits that's out there is a layer of complexity, often a layer of complexity that's not needed. It was inserted in the tax code. People found out how, how to manipulate it to their benefit, and so it has delivered some sort of benefit to them, but it's to a small group of people. By taking that out, Everybody gets the benefit of the lower rate, and so we're going to really focus on lowering the marginal rate for construction. And you know, unfortunately, construction is one of the highest marginal rates of all industries. I think we're 33 percent uh, marginal rate. I think next up was retail. We're trying desperately to make sure that uh, that we get our number down and that we do any tax reform ideas. Uh, comprehensively so so c corps and pass-throughs are all done at the same time because you don't want those tax deductions or incentives to go away for everybody but only the rate reduction to show up for the c corps you want everybody to benefit uh, so we've been really pushing to keep all the uh, all the tax policy decisions in one bill so that uh, we don't create winners and losers inadvertently 
Right, and you wouldn't want to give benefits to, to one group in one bill and with the promise of benefits coming later for the second group and then they never materialize. You don't want to negotiate against yourself in those cases, right? Right, and, and, and unfortunately, when a big bill passes, there's a lot of time in between a big bill and the second big bill. So waiting for promises to come out of that second bill is not a really good strategy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's, uh, that's a bad bet. Well, unfortunately, we can't talk about all, uh, by my count, 152 different policy proposals that are contained in the document. But I do Oh, I got to... plenty of time. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not sure our listeners do, but I do want to talk about one more, and it's the repealing prior approval on um, PAC solicitations. Can you kind of explain what that is and why it's a top priority for the AGC? Uh, yeah. So the issue that Scott's talking about is... Uh, is a requirement in the federal election law that was originally put in place in the 1970s uh, with the idea that political action committees that, that are put together by trade associations were going to try and skirt around um, contribution limits because everybody had contribution limits at the time that were, that were uh, aggregated uh, across all federal candidates. Um, it, it uh, with with Supreme Court cases uh, in recent times, all those aggregated limits are are null and void, so those don't matter anymore. Uh, the prior approval process really is a unique restriction on communication between the AGC pack and AGC's members. It is the we are a small sliver of of the country that has this sort of restriction and it keeps us from being able to freely talk about our pack with our members. So we, we really are trying to find a way to get this repealed so that we can talk to our members. The, the weirdness about this restriction is that it not only says you have to grant us permission to solicit you, but also that you can only grant permission to one trade association. Now, uh, people are active in the AGC in multiple states because why wouldn't you be active in AGC in multiple states if you could? (laughs) And when they're operating in Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, and they have different people running each operation in each state, the people in those states don't always know who at the corporation has given this prior approval. So it it creates this this barrier to people who want to give to the PAC but say, you know, I don't know if if someone in a different state has already done this or if my boss at, at headquarters has done this. And it's just plain crazy. And there are already limits that exist on personal contributions too. So it's not like, you know, repealing this would create this unlimited system of, of No, there already is an unlimited system where you can you can give as much as you want to a to a group that doesn't report who its contributors are. I mean, the right. the, the Citizens United ruling has basically opened the floodgates to all sorts of unaccountable entities able to say any kind of bad stuff they want about any politician in the country. We're the responsible people. We only give to candidates who are willing to put their name on their ads. So really, our money is is the clean part of politics, if there is a, such thing as a clean part of politics. Perhaps on the cleaner side. Of sure, politics. sure. But I think that's uh, about all the time we have. Is uh, there anything else you want to talk to the members about on our policy priorities or anything like that? No, I was just getting warmed up. I'm sorry <laughs> you shut me down. Maybe we'll, do, we'll come back in a couple of months and do a part two. Uh, but I do want to thank AGC's Jeff Show for joining us today, and I want to thank you for listening. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast. Mm-hmm.